But I also mention it because it's in our text. And I want to just take you back and give you kind of the big picture just for a moment to let you know that uh, this section on resurrection, rapture, and the day of the Lord began in 13 of chapter 4. So take a look back there just for a second where Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed brethren, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, about those who are asleep, that's those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe, or since we believe, that Jesus died and rose again, that's our hope, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died in Jesus. And then we have this great statement about the return of the Lord. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain or survive will be caught up together with them, those who have fallen asleep or died, in the clouds, that's the glory clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, that was a text that we studied just a few weeks ago, and one thing I want to just alert you to is there's no chapter breaks in the original letter, and the section on this topic moves from 4.13 to 5.11. It's the same uh, content. It's the same topic. The topic is the coming of the Lord, the resurrection, and the rapture from 4.13 to 5.11. I mentioned to you as we did the first part of the study of the day of the Lord that the natural question is, well, when is this going to happen? You know, and that's what people would be asking now, 5.1, as to the times and the seasons or epochs, brethren, you have no need for anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, that's a synonym of the coming of Jesus Christ, will come just like a thief in the night. Now, interestingly enough, J. Vernon McGee this morning on the program was teaching on the day of the Lord. And I thought, ah, that's interesting. There's J. Vernon McGee. He's been in heaven for a long time. And they're airing a, ta- uh, they're airing a sermon on the day of the Lord. And he touched on some of these scriptures. And one thing that he said was that there's no way that we can know when the rapture will occur. And let me just, I want to just explain just for a second. So, Within the views of the return of Christ and the rapture, there are some differing views. There are some people that believe that Jesus will rapture his church at the beginning of what's called Daniel's 70th week. Scholars would say that's a seven-year period. It's really anchored in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. It's a final seven-year period known as Daniel's 70th week. And they say that the church will be raptured at the beginning of that time. And then essentially what will happen is that the day of the Lord will commence and all hell will break loose on the earth. That's called the pre-tribulation rapture. It happens before the seven years commence. Now, I will say that there are many good scholars who hold that view. I don't hold that view. But I hope they're right. 
Because if they're right, that means that we won't have to deal with any of what goes on in that seven-year tribulation period. Now, there are some who are mid-tribulationists. They believe at the halfway point of that final seven years is when the church will be taken, so the church will deal with some stuff. But before the Antichrist really starts his shenanigans and all of that, the church will be taken out, and then there'll be a time of great tribulation. That's the mid-tribulation perspective. I don't hold that view either. Then there are people who hold a post-tribulation rapture view, they believe the whole seven years will go by and then the church will be taken out. I don't hold that view either. And then there are other people who believe in a pan-tribulation view, however it all pans out. But what I hold to is something called the pre-wrath view. And in this view, there's a distinction between tribulation and wrath. Tribulation okay. is a Greek Father, word called phlipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S, phlipsis. And it simply just means trouble or pressure. Jesus said, in this world, you will have phlipsis. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In the pre-wrath view, there's a distinguishing between tribulation and wrath. If you look at verse 9, just to look ahead for a second, God has not destined us for what? For wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So wrath is not for God's people. So I would argue that whenever the day of the Lord commences, since it is wrath, it's not for us. With us in what we're but doing. the question is, is when does the day of the Lord actually begin? How can we reach all does the, the day of the Lord begin at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week? Or does it begin somewhere in the midst of those seven years? This is where some of these views swing. And I, and I don't want to get overly technical, but I think a lot of you are familiar with this content. So here's in the pre-wrath view. The pre-wrath view says we will be taken out pre-wrath but it doesn't mean that we will not go through trouble or tribulation. Everybody with me? There's the distinguishing between tribulation and wrath. Now, let me ask you, has the church ever been spared tribulation? Uh-uh. In fact, wouldn't we argue right now that we're going through tribulation? There's some churches that are meeting this morning under threats of being locked down, under threats of fines and arrest. This morning! Not many miles from this location. There's tribulation, but, but that's relatively minor to other parts of the world where if you get caught in a meeting, you could be killed. So the church has always uh, gone through tribulation. In fact, 11 of the 12 apostles die a martyr's death. So for us to believe that just because we're the bride of Christ, we won't have any trouble is really to be naive and ignorant of the Bible, the church has had 2,000 years of trouble. Now it's been, you know, at different uh, levels and all of that, but nonetheless, we've had trouble. And what I will say to you is that in the pre-wrath view, the pre-wrath view says we will go through trouble, but before the judgment of God comes, God will pull his people out right before the wrath. Okay, And 
What this is uh, in concert with is the illustrations that Jesus gave. I'm not going to go back and take you to them, but he gave two illustrations, Noah and Lot. Noah built the ark all those years. God shut the door, and he shut the door, and on the day he shut the door, the flood came and took them all the way, all away. The angels told Lot, we can't destroy this place until you're out. They pulled the family out. And as they were going out, the fire fell. So this is what the pre-wrath view argues, that right before the wrath will be the rapture. And remember that the resurrection precedes the rapture, as we just read in chapter 4. So before the rapture has to be the resurrection because we won't be taken up. We won't precede those who have died. So there's going to be a resurrection and a rapture and God's people will go out and then judgment will come down. Okay, we are not appointed to wrath. Now I will tell you, I hope and pray the pre-tribulation rapture view is correct because I have no martyrs complex. <laughs> and if the Lord wants to spare us from that trouble, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And I remember uh, years ago, uh, Walter Martin, who was kind of the apologist of the last century, and he wrote uh, The Kingdom of the Colts and so forth. He had a post-trib view. Chuck Smith, founder of Calvary Chapel, had a pre-trib view. And they were going up to the mountain on a retreat, and they were debating the two views. And basically... Uh, Walter Martin said to Chuck, if you're right, I'll just grab onto your ankle and we'll go up together so it'll, be, it'll all be all right. Now, I will say this to you. This is a in-house debate. Good scholars disagree. And so this is not an essential doctrine. The timing of the rapture or the resurrection is not an essential doctrine. But it is an important doctrine for the generation who will face it. Can I get a witness? <laughs> now, it might not matter to anybody else, but if you're going through it, you might want to know what the timing's going to look like, right? Now, no man knows the day or the hour, but we are going to be given, and this is kind of where we were headed last time, we're going to be given some signs to look for, seasonal signs. And I want you to see something important before we move on. Because the world, here's a sign in verse 3. The world will have a denial mantra at the time. They'll be saying, 1 Thessalonians 5.3, peace and safety, peace and safety. Morris points out right up to the coming of the Lord, they'll be saying this. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. But destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Similar to Noah, similar to Lot. But this is what a lot of pre-tribulation rapturists leave out. See, the rapture will not, or the second coming of the Lord, will not come like a thief in the night to the church. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day, and that's the day of the Lord, just connect that to verse 2, would overtake you like a thief. Now, if the rapture is pre-tribulational and signless, you'll hear uh, teachers say there's no sign that must be fulfilled before the rapture comes. It could come at any moment, right? Jesus could come and bam, we're out of here. That's a signless rapture. And then if that's true, wouldn't the rapture come to a lot of people like a thief in the night? 
Think about it. It would come as a surprise because if none of us know when the rapture is going to occur, if it's signless and there's nothing that surrounds it, there's nothing to look for, then whenever Jesus does appear, if it's pre-tribulational, we'll come like a thief. Doesn't that make sense? But that's not what our Bible says. Our Bible says, no, it's not going to come like a thief to you, brethren, because you're not in darkness that the day, the day of the Lord, would overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light, sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Now you might say, well, Pastor Michael, what are the things that will occur before this great day of the Lord? That would be important to know. I told you that the times last week will be similar to the times of Noah and the times of Lot. Just quick review, the times of Noah, the thoughts of people were only evil continually. Genesis 6.5. Genesis 6.11 says the world was filled with violence. And then if we move to the time of Lot, the world was filled with sexual perversion. Hmm. Just, just ponder that just for a second. Thought, life, only evil continually. People just couldn't think pure thoughts anymore. Violence covered the face of the earth. And then if you look at the time of Lot, sexual perversion when the angels go into Sodom in Genesis chapter 19. So that's interesting. Now what Jesus does say is that people will be doing their normal things up until the coming of the Lord. They'll be eating, they'll be drinking, they'll be planting, they'll be sowing, they'll be marrying and being given in marriage. Those are normal, everyday events. So people will be trying to go about normal life while the signs of the times are pointing to the return of Christ. People will be in denial. They will stick their head in the sand, so to speak. They will not want to acknowledge what is happening. Men will be fainting from fear at the prospects of what is facing the earth. But this is not the situation for you. But here's, here's one verse just to write down. Amos 5, 18 through 20. I mentioned eight Old Testament authors mentioned the day of the Lord. Just write this down. Amos 5, 18 through 20. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? It's going to be a dark day for the world. In fact, one of the signs that the day of the Lord is coming is a cosmic sign. The natural lights go out. This is seen in a lot of different places, but let me just take you to a couple verses. Hold your place in 1 Thessalonians. Let's turn over to the book of Malachi. That's the last Italian book of the Bible. It's actually Malachi, but I prefer Malachi because I am Italian, and I believe he liked the pasta. <laughs> Malachi. <laughs> Uh, chapter 4, so you're going now to the last part of your Old Testament, Malachi 4. Take a look. Verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, Malachi 4, 1, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze. We saw this in Isaiah 13 last week. Says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. 
But for you who fear my name, Malachi 4.2, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, what's your Bible say? Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, there's no doubt that John the Baptist was a fulfillment of this in one sense, that he came and announced the coming of the Messiah, his first coming. And he was trying to turn the hearts of Israel back to the Lord and back, if you will, to their families. But this is a great and terrible day of the Lord is the final day of the Lord. So there's a future fulfillment. Remember I told you that the day of the Lord kind of has uh, embryonic stages to it. There are places where the day of the Lord, there is a day of the Lord in embryo. It's kind of like a one fulfillment, but then there's an ultimate fulfillment of the ultimate day of the Lord. This is an example of that. And the ultimate day of the Lord will pre be preceded by the arrival of Elijah the prophet. Now, you say, well, how in, in the world does that work? Well, I won't go there because I don't have time to put it all together, but Revelation 11 tells us that there are two prophets that will show up in the last days, and they have similar miracle-working power to Moses and Elijah. And so it's just an interesting thing to take note of. Now, here's another sign that will happen, and this is in the book of Joel. And uh, we can see this in many different places, but let's just, uh, just listen to it, and you can write this down for your notes. This is Joel 2, 31 and 32. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before, Joel 2, 31, the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So we've had, we have a couple things now. We have a cosmic sign that the moon will be like a blood moon, and the stars will go dark. I was looking the other day with all the fires uh, here in California <laughs> and other states. And I looked at the sun, and the sun was red. <laughs> and, I, and it looked really eerie. We've had some really eerie mornings and, uh, you know, just with the smoke and the weather. And uh, I got a, a, one of our staff people sent me something about what's happening in the moon and that the moon is rusting and it's confusing uh, those who study such things. And I don't know if this is, has any relation, but I will tell you this. We have a couple things. Elijah the prophet, we have a cosmic sign. Things start to go dark. Some people think it's an eclipse. And we have the signs that Jesus gave us that relate to Noah and Lot. And so we start to piece these things together. And these are the signs of the times. These are the things that you could say, you could look for and know that this is about to commence. I could tell you much, much more. I have so many pages of notes. But I'll just tell you this. There's one other place that it's past our text now. Back to 1 Thessalonians, and you go just a few pages to your right to 2 Thessalonians. And I pointed this out at the end of last week's message, but I want you to look at it because I think you need to put this also in the signs to look for. This is 2 Thessalonians 2, 
1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. 2 Thessalonians 2.1. It's his coming and our gathering to him. What's that sound like? There's the resurrection and the rapture in 2.1. 2 Thessalonians 2.2. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure. Don't be freaked out. Or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Keep reading. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless what happens? The apostasy comes first. That's a word for falling away. A great falling away. And the man of lawlessness, most believe here the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of perdition or destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was, was still with you, I was telling you these things? Paul was teaching them about the end times or the signs of the day of the Lord. And verse 3 is the key. You are not going to have the day of the Lord until you have an apostasy and a man of lawlessness revealed. And if the day of the Lord is one single second coming, one event, then you're not going to have the second coming until you have the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Everybody with me? So you've heard pastors say, I'm not looking for Antichrist, I'm looking for Jesus Christ. I agree. I say amen. But I just read a passage that says the day of the Lord is not going to come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. Amen? Now this might rock some of your uh, views of the last days. I understand that. This may, uh, you know, you might be saying, well, this doesn't fit with what I've heard elsewhere. And that's okay. This is just for you to consider. But these are the things that I start to stack in my mind in terms of what would surround the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why I am not freaking out about this going on over there, this going on over there, because I understand, and this is my view again, but I've, I've got about, you know, I put, gave you about five or six things to look for. And if they're not here yet, then it ain't going to happen yet. And this is, this is where the thief in the night idea doesn't apply to believers. Back to 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. You're not going to be caught off guard that that day would, would come to you like a thief. That's what the Bible says. You're all sons of light. You're sons of the day. You're not of darkness. This looks back to the day of the Lord. You were formerly darkness, Ephesians 5, 8, but now you are light in the Lord. So what should you do? What should I do? Walk as children of light. You've been called out of darkness, 1 Peter 2, 9, into his marvelous light. So this is going to be the way that the end times unfold as I take scripture with scripture. So what should we do? Well, look at verse 6, 1 Thessalonians 5. So then, let us not sleep. That's an idea there, not of death, but don't be out of it. Don't, don't be like the person who somebody says, that dude's just asleep, man. That, that's what's being said here. It's saying, don't, don't just be like a person who's napping through life and you don't understand the signs of the times. Jesus said, you guys can read the, the sky and you can say a storm is coming, but you don't understand the signs of the times. And oftentimes we say, you know, in an exhortive manner, wake up, church, wake up, 
Somebody uh, who was a former Muslim terrorist who became a Christian said on 9-11, the alarm went off in America and we hit the snooze button. A, con a converted Muslim terrorist said, we got a warning, just something for us to wake up and, and churches swelled and prayer meetings were unbelievably attended for about three weeks. And then we went back to our normal life. See, we need to be awake. We need to be uh, not sleeping as do others. The idea of sleeping here is a word that ties to, and the lack of alertness here, but namely the word for sleep has the idea of moral indifference. Ah, it doesn't matter. And this fits exactly with the illustrations of Noah and Lot because people were making fun of Noah in the time of Lot, they were trying to satisfy their desires, but they ignored the signs of the times. Two angels showed up in the town. Wouldn't that get your attention? Like, maybe I need to get my house in order instead of the opposite? But this is what took place. And to be asleep means to be morally indifferent or indifferent to the things of God. You just are not mentally alert. Those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk... Get drunk at night. Group number one is drunk and asleep. They are unprepared. Group number two is awake and alert. Turn over to Matthew 25. Illustration from Jesus. Now, Jesus gave, Matthew 25 is what you want. He gave the famous Olivet Discourse, the sermon about his second coming in Matthew 24. And then in Matthew 25, he gives a parable or a comparison of the kingdom of heaven, about 10 virgins. Take a look. Then the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 25, 1, will be comparable to 10 virgins. A parable is a comparison, so you can kind of get the idea of what this looks like. Who took their lamps, these 10 virgins did, and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent or wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. By the way, the lamp of that day would not work without oil. So that would be like having a lamp in your home with no light bulb in it. That's dumb. Why isn't this lamp working? <laughs> well, you might want to put a light bulb in it because that's the way it works, right? So that's the, the lamp of the ancient world had to have oil in it. Some people believe these are torches that you had, uh, you had material on, then you would soak the the, the uh, material in oil, and then it would stay lit for a while. Some, other, some others believe it's the smaller lamp that you put the oil in. Either way, it works. They were unprepared. They did not have the oil. Some people believe the oil represents the Holy Spirit. I'll, I'll leave that to you. Now, while the bridegroom, so the prudent took oil in the flask along with their lamps, the foolish did not, verse three. While the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and they began to sleep, Jesus telling the story. But at midnight, very unusual time for the bridegroom to arrive, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. He's here. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you to go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. This is the idea of an ancient wedding. 
And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, says Jesus, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now I think it's obvious that the foolish virgins here don't know the Lord because the Lord says to them when they knock, I don't know you. And eternal life is to know Jesus. Amen? So uh, remember with parables, go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. You got to just be careful. Don't read something into every little detail. But here's the big picture. They were not alert. They were asleep. They were not prepared. They were not ready. They didn't know the Lord. Therefore, they were not let in. And the idea led into the wedding feast here is the idea of let it, being led into the Father's kingdom. They didn't know the Lord. That's why they weren't ready. People who know the Lord will be ready. People who don't know the Lord won't be ready. It's just that simple. I don't think this is about a loss of salvation or they didn't have enough of the Holy Spirit. I think this is just simply they weren't ready because they didn't know the Lord and they weren't prepared for his arrival. But you are not in darkness that that day would overtake you like a thief. When the shout comes and the bridegroom's coming, we're going to be saying, oh yeah, it's party time. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if Malachi's there, there will be spicy meatballs present at the feast. Come on. Anyway, <laughs> unsaved people are like drunken men living in a false paradise, enjoying temporary false security. If I could just numb myself, stay asleep. But since 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, we are of the day, we are children of light, let us be what? Let's be sober. That means just be paying attention. Having been, having put on, now here's something you can do because I hear your hearts and I, I feel what you're probably feeling in your heart, which is, so what do we do? <laughs> what, what do we do right now? And, and if this isn't going to happen in our lifetime and we don't know, but if these are the signs that we're to look for and maybe the signs don't happen in our generation or whatever, what are we to do? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, since we're of the, the day and we're <clears throat> to be sober, let's put on three things. The breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. See that phrase, put on? There's a lot of verses and uh, these verses are pointed out when it comes to the armor of God, but there's something that we're to put off and put on as believers. We're to put off the deeds of darkness, Romans 13, and we're to put on the armor of light. Every day, brethren, please hear what I'm going to say. You need to put on the armor of light. Notice that it's called the armor of light in Romans 13, 12. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Romans 13, 12. Write it down for your notes. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave, Romans 13, 13, properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. 
one writer has pointed out, here we see the, the triad of Christian graces. We have faith, love, and hope. And these become our armor in days that are dark. We are to watch and pray. Spiritual armor is necessary for a spiritual battle and spiritual assaults. William Neal says, watch and pray should be graven on the shield of every Christian warrior. You've got to put on the armor, folks. I've got to put on the armor because this world can just beat you down into the dust. And you start looking at news reports and you start looking at division in the world and you start looking at different opinions in the church and you can, get, you can just be frazzled and hopeless. And the antidote to that is to put on the armor of God, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse eight again. To put on the breastplate, it, it guarded your vital organs, especially your heart, but it went from your throat all the way to your thighs. That's the breastplate. Put it on. It's the breastplate of faith and, and love. And in uh, Ephesians, I think it's 6.16, Paul says, take the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all, not some, but all of the flaming arrows of the wicked one. You gotta take up your shield of faith in this crazy, broken world. And I gotta take up my shield of faith because the enemy is constantly firing at me to lose hope and lose faith. And some of you may be at a low point in your faith right now. And I would say to you, take up your shield, man. It's not a physical shield you take up. It's right here explained. It's, it's a breastplate and a shield of faith. Do the things that will feed your faith, your love. And as a helmet, we have a helmet of salvation in Ephesians 6. Here it's the helmet of the hope of salvation. We have hope despite what's going on in the world. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely, 1 Peter 1.13, on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Put on your helmet, man, because you've been, not been destined for wrath, nine, but for obtaining that hope, that salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our destiny, not wrath, salvation. Amen? Not wrath, paradise. Not wrath, but in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. Not wrath, but the wolf and the lamb lying down together and the curse being reversed and new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells and we will see his face and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. That is our hope. And the one who spoke these words, Revelation 21, is faithful and true. This is where we need to put the helmet on, back securely, and uh, celebrate who we are in Christ. Our faith, our hope, our love are energized by this beautiful freeing thought. God has not destined his children, his bride for wrath. No, just the opposite. The great day of salvation is coming. We've compared it to the Passover, and rightly so, when Israel was delivered from Egypt by God, they had uh, toiled in slavery, hard labor. They were sighing, crying out to God. There was doubt, fear, lack of faith. And then the Lord passed over and rescued his people. That implies to me that it may get hard before deliverance comes. If the parallel is to ancient Israel in toiling in slavery in Egypt, which is a type of the world, then it tells me it might get bumpy 
before the rescue comes. See, Jesus, the lamb who his blood, his death, his resurrection has been applied to our life, he died for us. Here's the gospel, verse 10, that whether we are awake, whether we are alive or asleep, whether we have died, we may live together with him. Gracious Lord, I wrote in my notes, thank you for dying for me, preparing a place for me and coming to rescue me so that where you are, there I may be. Jesus Christ has secured our destiny. Therefore, final verse, encourage one another. Just like we saw in 4.18, comfort one another with these words. Now we're told, encourage one another. Pray tell, how can we do that, brethren, unless we're spending time together? How can we build up one another if we're not at least together in a Bible study or in some way with believers? I know that this is a tough time and I know we have a, a live uh, stream uh, group with us right now and I know it's, it's a tough time and some people are not able, but I'm just saying, man, we need the church now. We're in such a desperate time and this is something that John MacArthur said, we're, we're in one of the most desperate times our country has seen and we're shutting people out from the one place that they can find hope. To encourage one another and build one another up, verse 11, just as you also are doing. Keep doing it, brethren. Keep encouraging one another. We have a, a great men's group here at the church and there's a group of guys that uh, Elder Ron was telling me about, uh, I think about 10 of you guys, Ron, is that true? And uh, you text each other regularly, encouraging verses, prayer requests. And uh, it's been going on for months and it's been a really cool thing for their lives. And if you're not connected in that way, that's one of the things you need to do. You could do that just simply by texting a group of people saying, hey, can I have your number so we can encourage one another? And this is the way this happens. Father, thank you for your living word. And there's a lot to digest here. Thank you that the day of the Lord is coming. It's not going to be a fun day for the world, but it's going to be a day of deliverance for your people, a day when we meet you, a day when you will rescue and wrath will come. And Lord, uh, whatever the timing of that may be, here's what we do know, it's going to happen. It's going to happen in your time and you're going to sum up man's day and it's going to be the day of the Lord. And we take great comfort in that because the day of man, well, we've had our opportunities, Lord, and we can see what we do. And we can especially see what we do without you. We are good at making a mess of things. Now, with your heart humbled before the Lord, let me ask you, do you know him? Is he in your life? Is he your Lord and Savior? If you were to leave this planet tonight, do you know that you know him? Well, this is a way to make sure of that, and it's just simply something like this, and it's, it's simple but yet very profound. Lord Jesus, pray it if it's you. I repent of my sin. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for trying to do my life without you for ignoring the ways that you've prompted and tried to get my attention. But I'm listening. Lord, would you save me? 
I turn away from my life without you, my life of rebellion, and I repent of all that, and I place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to say, Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for preparing a place for me, and thank you that you're coming again to make all that's so chaotic and such a mess, you're going to clean it up, you're going to make it right. I want to be on your side. I want to know you. I want to be prepared, whatever that's going to look like. I want to lead others to this hope, to this faith and hope and love. Just cry out to him. You don't have to have perfect words, but just make sure that you've decided. Father, for all those who are crying out to you, maybe prodigals who are coming home, maybe saints that have just needed a a fresh word of encouragement and something to maybe uh, refresh them and embolden and energize them. I pray that that would be the case. I pray that you would encourage and build up your people through this word. I pray that they would have hope and that hope would be the anchor of their souls and my soul. In Jesus' name I pray. If you agree, would you say, amen. Would you stand?